0: many hundreds, particularly that last number, there's many hundred compounds, and you're going to be able to to classify what that enzyme does. So enzymes, why are we going to spend the rest of the series of this lecture course on enzymes? Because they are so important. You are using your enzymes now. They are accelerating reactions, which would normally not work in a biological system. So here we have a energy coordinational diagram, where we have a amount of energy, delta G, in ground state. So here we have our substrate coming in. And we want to do work on that substrate. And this time I'm going to say we're going to try and extrapolate energy. And when we extrapolate energy, the product is going to be at a lower energy state, which is illustrated here at this ground state. So we see a transition from the substrate to the product in regards to a release of energy, okay? Making and breaking of those bonds. Obviously, if we're making bonds, and we're going to produce and put energy in a system, we'd be going the opposite way in regards to producing, this would be the product, this would be the substrate. So in this case, let's have a look at what's going on in regards to the energy coordination diagram here. So the first thing, we're going to transition the whole reaction in two individual steps. The first, the substrate going to the product, and then the product going to the substrate. And the difference between those is what we call the delta G prime zero. And we've already seen that in Gibbs free energy equation. So we already know what that kind of means in regards to is going to be positive, it's it going to be negative, is it going to be an overall engine. We can actually me- measure it. But the big one is, is this issue, this energy barrier, this transition state. We've gotta get over that first off. Without getting over that, this reaction is gonna stay on to the left-hand side in regards to the products. It's not gonna move over and move forward to the products. I mean, to the, sorry, to the reactants. It's not gonna move over to the products. So we use enzymes to enable us to do this. So unfavorable chemical events are circumvented by the particular reaction. Now, the interesting thing, is not so simple as a simple substrate product there's intermediate steps which have their own sequential and differential energy requirements. And some of these which we'll see and appreciate that are actually gonna be some of the selective factors to allow a substrate in, to interact with its particular enzyme to produce the product. So here we have a very large protein and our substrate bound in there, but also then there's energy requirements for that initial binding. Remember, our. Uh, on rate, off rate, KD, KA. And then there's also going to be energy requirements for the release of that compound, which is now going to be a new product. So, substrates change, binding energies, you have release energies in regards to also providing that particular sequential and specific energy barrier or consumption of energy. And again, it gives it this specific selectivity. So there's all these little kind of hallmarks of energy requirements for a simple molecule to interact with a protein, which gives it specificity and selectivity. And we'll come back to that in a minute. So what an enzyme does, it actually allows a reaction to move forward with a lower energy requirement. Because what it does, instead of having A and B come together and allowing a random reaction to occur, because A is in that corner, and B is in this corner, they're diffusing, you know, bang, that reaction. But depending on the concentration of those individual reactants, the, re- the process might be very slow. What we see in enzymes, we actually accelerate the enzyme B reaction many, many, many thousand fold. Because what we do, we invite the compounds to a party, We basically get them all into one room, get them really packed together, and then make a change and spit the one out and get that next one, spit it out, get the next one, spit it out. But again, there's going to be instrumental components and pathways for this substrate to be invited to the party to go through the transition and hopefully leave without a hangover. So what we're going to see in this case, the transition state change, because the enzyme is going to say, okay, I have the selectivity to that substrate, and I can offer a lower energy path system to go go through a modificational process. So what I'm first going to do, there's gonna be an energy requirement for the substrate to bind to the enzyme to form the enzyme-substrate complex. These are fleeting interactions. They're covalent, they are making bonds, and they're going to require energy. Then what happens, we get to this new transitional state, which is obviously much lower than the uncatalyzed reaction. Here's the uncatalyzed reaction. And now what we're going to do, we're going to transition and break bonds again with that particular uh, substrate to now produce a product. But that product is still attached to the enzyme. And that's what we call the enzyme product complex. So we're transitioning through two little barriers, an enzyme-substrate complex and an enzyme-product complex. Then our final barrier is giving energy. We've broken more bonds and release the product and the enzyme back in its original state to now accept more substrate. And that is a definition of an enzyme in regards to it has the capacity to keep going through the reaction with that particular selective substrate time and time and time again, until the enzyme starts degrading or having problems with three-dimensional structure and can't then go through the process of producing the product through these incremental steps. So again, the delta G transitional state energy for the catalyzed reaction becomes much less compared to the uncatalyzed. And that's where we get the issue of speed. So, we have the black and catalyze, the blue is the enzyme, we have the substrate, the product, the ES, the <coughs> substrate product complex, um, sorry, the e, sorry, ES substrate uh, enzyme complex, and EP, which is the enzyme product complex. And there is, believe me, there are enzyme substrate product complexes. We're not going there. That's if you have multiple sites in the same enzyme that has the same function, and they need a transition between three individual states. We'll talk about it. maybe a little bit about that. So the standard delta G energy is changed, and it's changed based on the position, direction, and importantly, the rate. And this is where we're going to be focusing a lot of our attention today in regards to the rate. So again, we need an energy component, energy activation, to get us into this transition state and to move through to the product. Is it a downward spiral? Is it beneficial in regards to breaking those bonds? So when we break that bond, ideally we should have enough energy in that bond to accelerate the next reaction or participate in the following or previous reaction to allow more reactants to go through. And again, that's that kind of coupling event that we see uh, a little later on. So this is a beautiful diagram of a substrate interacting with an enzyme. I just don't think the substrate molecule is interacting its little pinky finger in the cleft of the enzyme. is actually usually multiple faceted sites. It's a bit like a combination code on a lock. If one of those sites don't work well, it's going to change the reaction. It may not actually react. You might have to have all five coordinational components to allow the reaction to occur because those five coordinates might be passing electrons along. They might be actually a process of stabilization, forming a covalent bond to get the substrate in the right three-dimensional orientation to allow the enzyme to do its function. So a substrate and an enzyme, its active site AB, ideally should then interact. But what we're going to see once that ES complex transitions through, you might see some weird things happening. So same one, so. yes. So I I missed this slide here. When we cause a release of the ES complex, or if we go to the EP complex, there might be actually a three-dimensional structural change within the enzyme. Because that three-dimensional structural change, it might facilitate the release of the product. And again, the transitional state is hopefully going to be energetically favourable. If not. Again, it needs to be a coupled reaction, and that coupled reaction is mostly going to be the breaking and making of certain chemical bonds. So, going back to our Keq and our delta G prime uh, equilibrium constant, we've already seen this time and time again in regards to the Keq. So, again, a refresher. Now we've got a product substrate, uh, a product enzyme producing an enzyme pro- sorry, a s- enzyme substrate going to produce an enzyme product. So we can actually use our KEQ component in regards to cancelling out the enzyme component and seeing the product concentration divided by the substrate concentration is the KEQ. So we've seen in regards to the constants that are required in the equation and therefore we know a negative delta G is going to give us a reaction That moves forward. So again, we can look at the delta G components in regards to energy and the KEQs that are related here. So we have this very defined relationship in regards to the joules or the amount of energy required to allow these KEQs to go forward. But it says nothing about that rate of reaction. The reaction will go forward if it's negative delta G, but it doesn't tell us the time frame or how efficient. That particular reaction is with the enzyme to produce the product. So, what we see then is a system of kinetics, and you're going to go back mostly to your second or first year of chemistry, you've mostly done first order, second order kinetics. You're going to have to revise it. So, some of the reaction rates of enzymes can actually greatly accelerate the process of the consumption rate of the substrate to produce the product. Many, many thousand fold, as you can see. So, the rate of the reaction in this case is really determined by the concentration of the reactants, in this case the substrate. And what we can do is keep looking for that substrate. How much substrate do we have left? Is there a decrease of that substrate? And what's the rate of that substrate accretion? And this is what we call first order kinetics, where the velocity, the the velocity or the rate of reaction is going to be dependent on a kinetic constant and the concentration of that substrate. Obviously, the more substrate we give to the enzyme, the more velocity and product we're going to produce. So it's a simple complex. So, but what happens when we have to transition through a substrate 1 and a substrate 2, or we have two different substrates? And again, we're going to have second order kinetics where the velocity of the enzyme gain or the velocity of the consumption is going to depend on the concentration total of the substrate. This guy, the rate constant, is fixed. It's a constant for that particular enzyme. So here we have um, a situation where S1 and S2 in the second order process is exemplified by a binding pocket that is complementary and requires two components to be bound at the same time to actually cause the biological function. So again, to go to our second order rate kinetics. So the a- a- NADP, which will come to a molecule and a fully understand what it does, binds to a particular region in the protein and only upon binding causes that process we saw of induced. Once we get that process induced fit and stabilization of the protein, it opens up now another region of that particular protein to now do its enzymatic work. And in this case, binding in regards to the NADP and allow it to basically uh, fit correctly. Now, the fit is very rarely perfect. But in this state, the fit is inhibitory. It will not bind the substrate until this guy first goes in and does the job, not vice versa. The red one can't bind until the green one or the yellow one, but the yellow one needs to bind first. And it's most probably a large energy difference in regards to what this molecule does to contort the three-dimensional structure of the binding pocket to allow the accessibility of the new substrate. So again, back to our form function, that it involves a conformational change, usually in one binding pocket, or both binding pockets. And again, to give us the lowest energy capacity to allow our subject to bind selectively and then transition through that lower transition state to produce the product of interest. But there has to be some type of interaction that is going to give you a level of selectivity. We don't want everything being going through one particular enzyme we're going to have very selective enzymes that do very different work, as we've seen from the EC numbers. So, here's a, a horrible example that the book gives in regards to the issue of a transition state using these ideas of these metal bar and a magnet. Um, I'll try and explain the best I can. I don't like this one, um, but it's what's in the book, and we don't want to try and deviate too much from the book because it's going to confuse the crap out of you. So, here we have this substrate. And we've got to get into this transitional state to allow us to produce the product. Here is our simple reaction. This is an uncatalyzed reaction. It requires a very large amount of energy to produce that transitional state and to allow us to then get the reaction to move forward. Now, if the substrate was an absolute mimic of the pocket that it's going to bind in, it's going to cause some problems. So this is what we call the complementary model of the enzyme-substrate interaction. means it fits like a glove. And this is an example of what does not happen. So, too complementary. The problem is that this little metal bar, the substrate, the little magnets, going down there, forms the E-S complex. But as you know, if you put those metal magnets on, it's going to be pretty hard to move them off. So you need to have some flexibility where there's a transitional state to say, okay, I can destabilize that ES complex and then cause the release or the transformation of the EP complex and destabilize even the EP complex to cause the release of the product. But also I want to be in a position at the initial stage. If I've got another hump that I have to move through and I bind the substrate to the enzyme, and I don't want to move forward to produce the product, I can still release the substrate without no change. So we've got these little dynamic things occurring where there is forward and backward reactions, and they're going to be dependent on the energy and the transitional state. So in this case, when there is this absolute beautiful maximal interactions, our energy coordination is gonna happen here. Sure, we lower the energy substrate. It is going to bind the enzyme substrate to form the enzyme substrate complex. It's gonna love it. Thus, that's what we see here. But to actually then move it through the transitional state, look at the energy difference, it's much larger in regards to allowing us to get that through to produce the product. The product has the same coordination here in regards to the, the zero line, but the transitional component is much higher. We don't want to see that. So, what we actually do, we see a complementary transition state. So, when we get to this little state here, it's destabilizing. It still can be held, but with the right conditions, there's only a small amount of energy to allow us in to cause the release of the enzyme. Product interaction. So here we go. So here's the enzyme complex forming with only this time a few of the componentary components you can put in the transition complex state. When we actually further do the work to actually produce now the product and go through the transitional state, there might be a high level interaction. But that high level interaction is very, very, very small in regards to its time that it's in that complex. Then ultimately, what happens? It will transition to form the EP complex, the enzyme-product complex, and then ultimately the enzyme product, and the enzyme is back to its initial state to accept more substrate, and the product is different from that of the original substrate. And the energy coordination barrier here. So here we've got substrate with our first binding in regards to forming the ES complex. We go through the transitional state, we need some energy there, and then we might also need some a little energy here in the EP complex. This diagram is not 100%, because there should be another little here in regards to allowing us to form the EP complex to then allow us to release the enzyme back to its original function and and now the new product. So, again, these energy coordination diagrams clearly illustrate we need this transitional state because if we are too complementary with the substrate, we're going to have problems. We are not going to release that substrate. So, as I said to you before, we're looking at many facets here in regards to now, there's an equation component of binding energy. So this now, we have to think about the energy required to bind this particular enzyme substrate, and then produce a binding energy for the enzyme product, but then we need a releasing energy for the enzyme product Enzyme uh, product uh, differentiation. So we're going to be looking mostly at weak non-covalent interactions to give us this lower sum of activation energy. Mm-hmm. So here we go again, we're going to have the enzyme substrate going through its normal enzyme substrate complex, transitioning to the enzyme product. And now this time we have this part, this is the binding energy part, and here's the basically binding uh, energy also in regards to the release in the opposite direction. It's unbinding. And what we're going to see then is this delta Gb. So here we have this coordination between the catalytic uh, enzyme reaction, and then the difference is that of the delta Gb, the binding energy. Now, the interesting thing is same en- energies um, give rise to non-specificity. Meaning, it means anything combined because it has that particular energy available and binds to that particular substrate and that particular enzyme surface. Mm-hmm. The issue it gets down to, by having these selective binding energies that are different between every substrate and every enzyme, Okay, but the same, let's say, if we have a look at our uh, phosphoglucase uh, ATPase uh, system we saw before, the... Energy for that particular system is well defined, and it's a constant. So by having this energy differentiation in the binding, the transition, the release of the enzyme, it gives you the capacity to give you that level of specificity and selectivity to the substrate. A compound that cannot transition through those, the exact energy requirements, cannot be a part of the interactional process of that particular enzyme and can't use that enzyme as that modifier, okay? So this is where we get down to the issue of high-level specificity and selectivity. Enzymes have the ability to discriminate between their proper substrates and particularly a competing molecule for that same substrate area, that binding clamp. But we have some other problems occurring in regards to the inhibition. So again, these energy coordination diagrams basically illustrate Transitional state, understanding the energy requirements of binding and release, and importantly, this ESEP complex, which is covalently interactive but fleeting, unstable, and allows you to actually cause its release. But when you start mucking around with inhibitors, and different clefts of the enzyme, though so it might be holding its substrate or maybe wanting to accept the substrate, you can change the conformation of that substrate, that uh, binding site, and cause some changes. And that's what we're going to look at allosteric modulation and inhibition a little later on today. So here is an enzyme we will look at later on triose phosphate isomerase. You're going to have to draw these over the glycolysis and gluconeogenesis. Which is going to be our first metabolic pathway that's going to be coming up, I think, maybe next week. So, we have glyceraldehyde 3 phosphate and dihydroxyacetone phosphate. Okay, they are empirical formulas, they are isomers, they have the same uh, chemical uh, consistency in hydrogen, carbons, and oxygens and phosphates, but their bonding is different. As you can see in the carbon number 3 position, so carbon number two position, the carbon number one position. Here we have a double bond, and here we have a single bond on the alcohol, and then we have then the um, aldehyde in regards to the B- C double bond O being produced in the dihydroxyacetone phosphate. Now the enzyme itself allows it to bind either one or the other and transforms it to one or the other depending on what you need. So if you need more of this particular constituent the enzyme, quite happy, will suck up the psoralehyde 3-phosphate and give you this particular guy. And we're going to see why later on. We might want more of this or more of this, depending on what metabolic pathway and needs of the cell we're looking at. So again, the enzyme itself is, has a high specificity to these particular individual chemical functionalities. It has an ability to give you a molecular coordination in the cleft to cause the transformation of that alcohol to an aldehyde or that alcohol to an aldehyde. Remember I told you the old story, alcohol aldehyde is carboxylic acids. We're going to see this type of reaction time and time again, because nature's not very innovative in a way. So these particular steps to occur allow this to occur are extremely highly coordinated chemical reactions the transformation and, and safe carriage of electrons. Because we don't want these electrons start going, floating all over the place. And we're going to see that towards the end of the lecture series what happens when things go amiss when electrons do start to escape. And of you all said, oh, you know, you get those face creams. Oh, yes, they have electron suckers. You know, they basically suck up the electrons. The idea is to stop the aging of the skin in regards to producing oxygen-free antigen- radicals which cause aging. So there is very many steps involved in the transformation of a single molecule. And each of those steps have their own requirements, their own energies, and their own rates. So we have these thermal barriers we have to work with. We have the issues of increasing freedom of motion of molecules in a solution so the entropy component. How do we attract those? How do we hold on to them? How do we move them through the system? We have that horrible solvation cell for to first to get over our substrate has to get through that solvation, that solvation shell to get to the interaction of the cleft. And again, we've seen that in the past. And there might be energies. We also have this issue of rotation and distortion of the substrate to give issues a better binding in regards to. There might be energy requirements to cause distortion and flexibility of the molecule as it interacts with the substrate to allow to actually produce the interactional component. And we need proper alignment of these chemical functionalities. Because again, they are needing very small distances, points of an armstrong to be coordinated to transfer those electrons to form those covalent bonds, to form those ES and DP complex. And we know this happens in regards to if we start tethering molecules and start constricting versus uh, their non-restrictive components. So here we have a simple reaction uh, in regards to two uh, compounds coming together and their particular rate to reduce this particular molecule. Now, that's okay. The rate of enhancement, in this case, is the flat line in comparison to one. But if we actually start tethering and allowing these molecules to interact in very close proximity because they actually covalent bonded to each other, like we see here with this particular covalent bond here, we still see the interaction occurring much faster and see the rate of conversions much faster, so 10 to the negative, 10 to the 5. When we further hinder particular components of that reaction to allow us to get more stringent uh, orientation and more rigidity, Less flexibility components, we actually even further increase that rate. So, the, here is the increase of collisions, the rate orientation, and the correct orientation is going to actually give you an increased enhancement of the uh, chemical reaction. And this, again, is what enzymes try to do. Hang on. Okay. So, we've talked about water as a reactant. Water also plays a very significant role in enzyme actions. If you go back to some of the slides and I show you an enzyme cleft with a, a substrate in there, and how water has been positioned between the amino acids in the substrate, or water is interacting with a part of the substrate uh, to first initiate a reaction to then allow you to have protonation and deprotonation, and again back to our pKa values. So hopefully everything we've kind of put together is starting now form a foundation. So here we have stabilization of these intermediates. Now, this is a little bit of a chemistry in regards to, ideally, water's gonna cause a reaction, produce an acid-base interaction to get us to the shape form of the substrate that we want. And that's the whole thing in regards to, water can catalyze, it can be a general acid, a specific catalysis in the basic form, and allows, basically, to utilize its capacity to accept protons and give protons, as well as those electrons, in regards to kind of mixing our substrate to get into a particular form, because that form might be a necessity for the next chemical reaction, okay? So again, water plays a very significant role in regards to being an active species. So here we have a simple transformation In regards to a chemical functionality with a hydroxyl function, we move it through to form a triad or, sorry, an unstable form, very fleeting. But because you have the capacity of water and a potential base, we can sink those electrons, stabilize the usual uh, susceptible bond here to then allow us to have a very stringent uh, covalent bond which is going to be fully stabilized. R1 and R3. And in this case, we have then the capacity to have an intermediate here, which could be reacted with an acid base complex, and then allows causing the release, in this case of an ammonia-like compound, and <coughs> resulting products. So again, water plays a very important role. And I just want you to really be aware that that's why we exist on this planet. Water has played such a significant role in the development and evolution of enzyme reactions, without it, it wouldn't be existent. So it gets back to our amino acids and our ionization of our PKA's because we can use water, we can use the contribution of the hydroxyl ion, the hydrogen ion, to get to the stage where our three-dimensional structures our alpha helices, our beta sheets, our anti-parallel or parallel, our loops, our beta forms, are actually containing amino acids that are gonna be selectively ionized, willing to accept hydrogens, and willing to give hydrogens based on their pKa. And here we have enzymes with their specific sites. So when we look at a cleft of an enzyme, we're gonna find these amino acids being present. Remember, the amino acids may be very distal on our full sequence of primary, c- of primary structure, but as we fold them and bring them close together, they're going to be in close proximity. So we have these ones that contain the carboxylic acid, glutamine and aspartic acid. You should be able to draw these. And we can get the deprotonate of that to give you that carboxylic acid. We have arginine lysine on the side chain to give us then a charge difference. So again about that issue of charge and charge repulsion and how charge can change the 3 structure as we saw in hemoglobin. It happens also in the process of enzymes. Cysteine, a little different in regards to giving that thiol to a thiolate and that proton coming off and then this guy having some issues in regards to being able to react with itself, all that disulfide like bond. Histine, we've come back time and time again in regards to the imazole ring to allow us to actually... Cause a structural change to give us some electrons. That's going to be important. That's what we're going to see histidine plays a very important role in many of the enzyme reactants to give you this capacity to use those electrons. Serine gives you this capacity here to produce, but that's in a very, very, very stringent situation. Uh, we know we don't get too much deprotonation of pKa serine, but it happens in a different reactional process. So not really the pKa usually uh, having the capacity to suck up those electrons. And tyrosine, we know the pKa component plays a role there in regards to question of the molecule. So these guys have the ability to accept or donate protons. So a lot of the reactions we're going to study are going to be the issue of the transformation and shuffling of protons on a molecule, forming different bonds and allowing us to stabilize those structures. So here's a little example, chymotripsin. We've just studied the enzyme, it breaks peptide bonds. So let's have a look. Here we have a peptide bond. So what's going to happen? We have two amino acids, serine, 195, and histidine, 57. Again, histidine's around. And remember, histidine now has this little capacity in its particular deprotonate state to have those electrons. So what's going to happen? That histidine's going to present its backside electrons to... The serins. Now the serines are going to go. Okay, well, what am I going to do with these electrons? I really like to release my proton. I'm going to release my proton, but then I've got those electrons on my oxygen. What can I interact with those? And in this case, they're going to interact with the uh, carbonyl group or the alpha carbon on the carboxylic acid of a particular peptide. Now the peptides come in only because of its ability to bind within that particular. Um, uh, enzyme cleft. and as we know, chymotrypsin requires aromatic amino acids. There's going to be a requirement to have an amino acid that's uh, an aromatic, bulky one to also participate in the coordination of this guy close to these particular two amino acids. And in this case, we then get a transfer of electrons to move through onto the alpha onto the amino function or the alpha and nitrogen function, and allows ultimately to now cause a break in that particular bond. We get that particular bond, and now we've seen that proton go back onto the histidine from the serine, and the serine now is in a quagmire. It is now attached to the resulting uh, product or part of the resulting product. The product originally on the R2 side has now been released but we've got this guy to contend with and we need to have another reaction to go on. So here we have like an ES1 and ES2 interaction occurring. So again, we complex. But again, we have a particular enzyme have to get back to the deprotonated state and our, our, or put the proton back on our serine and then cause the release of the R2. So there's gonna be these incremental steps that we have to study to allow us to ultimately get to the release of the two products, in this case, R1 and R2. Okay? Because we're causing a cleavage. So we have nucleophilic attack, we have base base interaction in regards to the histidine, and we're going to study this a little later on in regards to the process of the secondary phase of acetylation and deacetylation uh, a little later on. But that's just kind of the issue of trying to get you to realise the complexity of enzyme interactions. Now the mathematics, which we'll have a look at a little bit, is actually much simpler. Thank God. So, we've seen a plot like this before, haven't we? In regards to our hemoglobin. We've seen a saturational plot. We've seen the 50% mark. It's exactly the same. Some scientists like like regurgitating the thing in different forms. So here we have an initial velocity plot, V0. So the idea is, as we have a fixed amount of enzyme and we start feeding it an increasing concentration of substrate, we're going to get the consumption of that substrate and the production of a product. The more substrate we get, the more product we get. Until we reach a point where we have saturated the enzyme. This is really important, because if we don't saturate the enzyme, we don't get the full understanding of the kinetics of the enzyme. So we have to have a saturational process. So here we have our velocity plot. So I'm putting enzyme, I'm putting substrate in, increasing the concentration, I'm getting rates, bang, bang, bang. I'm consuming product, I'm consuming enzyme-producing product, consuming enzyme-producing product, consuming enzyme-producing product. Now I'm getting to the stage where I'm starting to see substrates start to appear and products start to appear, meaning I've basically now got to the maximum component of the velocity of the enzyme. I can no longer add more substrate and produce more product. It, the product concentration that it's producing is now fixed. Because the velocity has reached its maximum, you cannot give it any more because that foil enzyme is doing as much work as it possibly can. It's working at its saturation point. So in this case, we can devise the reaction and look at the production of the maximal velocity. So here we have what we call the V max. Now the V max, you know, if we put this, keep going going, 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 it will reach the V max it Doesn't normally reach the feedback. it's because there's little issues, depth issues there. But it gets to there pretty close where we can see there's a level of stabilization. Okay. Now what we can do, like we, talk, we did with the partial pressure of hemoglobin, oxygen-hemoglobin interactions, and also with our ligand binding interactions with um, the KD right, Remember we talked about the KD and the KA we can produce this particular value, the Km. And the Km value is the half of the Vmax, or the maximal velocity of that particular enzyme. And that is a unique character, an identifier to that enzyme. Okay? So when people discover new enzymes, the first thing they want to figure out is, what is the Vmax? What is the Vmax? What is the saturational situation for its substrate? Once I've got that, I can find the Michaelis Menten constant. So again, this is a constant on the velocity of that enzyme at the half value to give you a constant constituent reflective of that sole enzyme and that sole substrate. Okay? Know this, as I say that. Now, it's really hard for us to kind of measure these curves. So what we actually do, we draw them a straight lines as we move through the maximal component of interaction towards the Vmax, okay? So in this case, we can pull out an equation in regards to allowing us to produce the Vmax uh, Michaelis-Menten equation. Now, I'm going to also post uh, some notes, the uh, handwritten notes, where I start changing things on this in regards to whether Km is greater than substrate, whether substrate is equal to Km, or whether uh, Km is smaller than substrate. And then you have to kind of think what goes on mathematically. It has an impact on the velocity of the enzyme because of these particular features. And this is why we need to be at this, what we call the steady state assumption. That if we don't maximize the enzyme velocity to its maximal point by giving it the maximum amount of substrate, we're gonna have problems because the kinetic process is not reflected fully of that enzyme function. So I'll get to that in a second. So what we do, we do these little kinds of line components which we can mathematically formulate in regards to the amount of substrate, the establishment of the Vmax, and knowing the Michaelis-Menten constant for that particular enzyme. We can assi- assign the Vmax in regards to when we have initial velocity, but we never get there. And we want to be working in this region here instead of this kind of wavy kind of getting towards getting so we're going to be a bit careful. So what we're going to do is we're going to draw these particular tangents to the arc and allow us to actually establish a particular velocity of the enzyme based on how much we're moving along in the substrate concentration. Remember, Vmax is already a I mean, uh, KM is already a constant, it's already established. So here we have a constant. We have a Vmax and we have a substrate. So again, we can take this into a particular equation, and this is what equation one is, and we call this the michaelis menten equation. Now, when the substrate uh, is at a saturational point, we can actually simplify this to, uh, to this equation here. So it provides us, importantly, a relationship between the velocity of the, or the initial velocity of the enzyme and the ultimate Vmax and the important part of the initial substrate where we add more substrate coming in. So again, a mathematical equation, and we're gonna see this again in regards to its manipulation. So again, we know you have to know how to work out the initial velocity of an enzyme given the Vmax at any any substrate concentration, also given the Km, so that's a very easy piece of math. But the issue is And I told you a little bit before, when we're looking at these multiple levels of reactions, they have their own rates. And they're gonna have a rate to move forward and a rate to move back. So if you want a reaction to move forward, obviously the rate of moving forward has to be much greater than the rate of moving back. Because no way you just gonna get a reaction that's just gonna move forward. There's always gonna be something going back in the opposite direction. It might be really small, but it's gonna still be there. But we have to bring that into our assumption. So this is called the steady state assumption. So we have the enzyme and substrate They're coming together, their binding energies are all favourable. The rate of K1 is the rate forward. The enzyme, substrate come together to now form the enzyme complex, okay? Enzyme, substrate, complex. Now, if that next energy barrier is not there or not come forward in the transition state with the energy being present, that enzyme substrate complex might dissociate and come back out. So that's where we have these double arrows, okay? And that particular rate is gonna be K minus so one. But let's go on to now the ES complex. We've got the ES complex. Now, the ES complex only has one of two options. It can either go backwards, have the ES be produced, or move forward to produce the EP complex. Now that single step from the ES complex to the EP complex is actually very defined and very, very, very important because it only moves forward. Okay? And you need to satisfy the energy requirements to get that initial transition from the ES complex to the EP complex. That's why this is in particular brackets and no particular rate. Is you don't have that, bang, you're going to go nowhere. You're going to have to go back to the K minus 1. Now, but once we're in that EP complex, we're going to have then only one rate to move forward. We're not going to be able to go transition back from the EP complex to the EDS complex because it's only one direction. So that means there's only one rate, K2, which is going to allow us then to release the enzyme and the product. And this is what we see here. And this is the steady state assumption. So the kinetic process of the overall reaction is defined on three values. K minus one, K one, and K two. So the late, the the, the rate limiting step to the breakdown is going to be the ES to the EP, the K two. That is going to be the rate limiting factor. We can potentially move this backwards and forwards and get nowhere. But it's that K2 is going to be giving us the rate constant in regards to producing the enzyme, reproducing the enzyme, and resulting and the release of the product. So that's what they call the steady-state assumption, and you can read a little bit more about that on page 201. Okay. So, as I said, I'm going to write some more notes about this in regards to just some of the simple math that goes on. So, the initial velocity we've established is half the, uh, uh, half or 50% of the the max. So again, go back to the equation number one. uh, Back uh, equation number one here. (coughs) We can use it this here. We can basically get now some math where we're going to substitute this particular value into equation one to give us the other equation that we saw before. Here is our Km value equals the, the V max times by the substrate concentration divided by the Km, the Mechanism menten equation, plus the substrate concentration, okay? Plus, not times, a lot of students would screw this up. So we can actually get rid of the Vmax component, the mathematical component Vmax, and we want to simplify our reaction or our equation. So we half now equals the substrate concentration divided by the Km plus the substrate concentration. So if we just know the substrate concentration, we should be able to work out uh, the Km quite easily. So we're going to solve for Km, and here we have a little equation here where we can use Km plus substrate because we're going to use a high level of substrate we can call that s2 and i said my notes show it better than here in the, than in the book so the important thing is when the substrate concentration is working at the same value of the michaelis menten equation we get something very unique anatomy, mathematically and that's when the initial velocity and equals that of the v max divided by two so again we get this particular plot. So when the Km, the Mechanism momentum, is equal to the substrate concentration, we define this particular value independently of that particular graph component. So dependent on any part of the uh, equation, as long as we are working around the value of our substrate concentration in this region, we're going to be able to define what the initial velocity is. And that's what it's all about. As I said, I'll show you the uh, notes regards to what happens when you start changing the substrate concentration. What does it impact, and how does it impact the Km value? How does it impact the Vmax and initial velocity? This is a little summary sheet that you should know. So from equation one, the Michaelis-Menten equation to establish the initial velocity of the enzyme, given that we know the concentration of the enzyme, we know the Km value, and we know the V max we might have to ascertain what the Vmax is by another manipulation. We can do the line weaver plot. Now basically it's also called the double reciprocal plot because what you're basically doing is taking the Michaelis-Menten equation and dividing it all by one, on this side and on this side, and you're inverting the equation. And I think I have a slide on that. So what we get in regards to the one over the velocity Equals the Kn divided by the Vmax and times by the time concentration of the substrate plus 1 over the Vmax, equation number 3. Now, why is this so important? Why don't I want to work with this? It's a hyperbola. I'm not going to put little lines here and get any little value. I'm going to try and put this into a straight line. Y equals Nx plus C, right? Guess what I do? Using the double reciprocal plot, I bring it into a straight line. So that now velocity plot, which still is very important information, gives you the Kn value, you can work out what the Vmax is. But by now doing that values with a particular concentrated substrate and putting it in the Burke-Line Weaver plot, we now get a linear function. And this is really important because from this linear function, you can now look at the intercepts and the gradient of the graph, and it tells you some very important information regarding the enzyme. In this case, the slope of the line is equal to the Km value divided by the Vmax. That's so easy to attain. And the intercept on the y-axis is 1 over the Vmax. So here you could potentially work out. In this case, having the slope, having the Vmax here, in this equation working out the km that n Or, you can just go here. The intercept in the negative region of the x-axis is equal to 1 over the minus the km value. So the berkeley line weaver plot simplifies the information obtained from the um, velocity plots. You need to be able to understand this and what you can calculate from the graph and you'll be given these Homework. We we'll also shown these in the tutorial, and we have some other slides coming up on Marlena on how to do the mathematics behind it. We want you to be abreast of these because this will be on the exam. Okay. But it gets a little more interesting. Do I have enough time for going in my interesting? Components? Yes, I do. So here we go. A little bit of math. You can work this out quite easy. I'm not going to ask you to derive the Michaelis-Menten because Actually, I've done it once um, in this class. It took me three panels. And uh, you all got lost. Okay, but it's in the book. Um, I don't expect you to be able, but I want you to be able to appreciate it. And if you are mathematically minded, go for it. It's actually a lot of fun because it gives you a clear understanding of what's going on in the enzyme wall. So here we have the Michaelis-Menten equation. Yes, very nice. We're going to produce the Birk Weaver plot. Uh, I'll say the Line Weaver Birk plot. Usually called the Birk Line Weaver, they change their names. Anyway, so we have our mental equation. We're going to put it over one. We're going to flip this over. Bang, single done. We are now going to separate those two equations out with the Km under the uh, Vmax substration concentration, substratation, uh, substrat- uh, con- substrate concentration Vmax with the substrate and the KM, we separate those out, let's give rid of those two uh, S's, bang, quite easy to do. So here we now have 1 over V max. So we then also have this to give us back to equation number 3, which is the line Weaverberg equation. So that's how we derive it from the Michaelis-Menten equation. As I said, the KMs are very specific and selective for their particular N we will be looking at this guy. Hexokinase a little bit later on. Uh, he actually has some interesting issues. He is a bit promiscuous. He can accept both glucose and fructose, and we'll be able to draw those structures look with the carbohydrate chapters coming up. They're going to consume also ATP. So again, this guy is going to be able to phosphorylate glucose and fructose at those particular rates. But look at the difference of the rate. He's obviously more preferable to glycosylating glucose, right, compared to that of fructose. Then we have the rate constant in regards to chymotrypsin. Here's a peptide, so sometimes you'll see peptides written like this. So here's a glycine, tyrosine, glycine moiety in regards to its capacity to form that peptide bond. And we have a Km of 108. And we'll have a look at some of these other carbonic anhydrase. In regards to the, carb- the uh, bicarbonate or carbonate that we actually gonna produce. When we talk about that carbonate issue with the Bohr effect on hemoglobin? This guy's going to produce that carbonate to provide the hydrogen to then actually protonate that hemoglobin. And that does it at uh, 26 millivolts um, Km value. So it's a pretty efficient enzyme. Okay. So we're now going to bring together what we understand regarding our birthline weapon plot and velocity plots as well as our steady state kinetic assumption. And we call this a K cat. And you saw K cat or um, uncatalyzed, catalyzed reaction on velocity on the uh, energy coordination possible. We've already come to this particular understanding that we have a commitment state as we go through the ES to EP complex, but here we only really show the EP complex, okay? So there's a very defined component in regards to, we're not going through a transition state of having an enzyme substrate and enzyme product process. So we only have one, two, three rates, okay? Obviously this guy is going to be the kinetic limiting rate in regards to allowing us to produce the um, enzyme and product. Okay, so we put it in, this guy is gonna be the rate in regards to allowing to determine the maximum velocity of the enzyme. That velocity consuming the product, I mean consuming the substrate to produce the product. So here we have the total enzyme concentration. Obviously we increase the enzyme concentration going to produce more product. If we give it more, I mean, if we remember we're saturating the enzyme, so if we have more enzyme, we have two lots of enzymes, we have two lots of products, but the rate doesn't change. So if we have the total amount of enzyme that we know, in a sense of the concentration of the enzyme, and we have the rate constant in regards to that production of the product, we can work out what the Vmax is, very easy. This is the simplest approach, but in biochemistry, nothing is simple. As I said now, we can go through the whole process. We just keep on the top viewpoint of the rate constants. The reaction is favorable, it's gonna move forward, we're gonna transition through K1, K2, and K3. That's simple, that's great. But again, we've got K minus two and K minus one working against us. But we know this doesn't really happen. That K minus two does not happen. K minus one does, but we're not gonna get that K2 component is going to cause then the release of the enzyme and then substrate the gain to be recycled. So in this case, the velocity plot in regards to the rate constant for this particular enzyme reaction is going to be also dependent on the K3. So if we have a known amount of enzyme and we know the K3 component on this more complex enzyme process, it's still going to be the Vmax is going to be rela- related to or dependent on K3 in that particular reaction. So K3 is the limiting reaction. So now we have this particular Kcat. So the Vmax and the catalytic reaction, depending whether it's one of this or this, that last part is the Kcat. So if we know the enzyme concentration and we know that last kinetic step to causing the release of the enzyme product. We can work out the Vmax, the velocity, uh, the maximal velocity, the max, maximal component of the enzyme, as you saw in our hyperbola uh, plot. Now, we can also substitute Kcat and Vmax into our equation five. So again, go back on I mean, equation four. I uh, say equation one, and that basically gives us then the capacity to produce Kcat. As a particular value within our Burke Weaver plot, or within our Michaelis Menten equation. So let's go back to the Michaelis Menten equation and say, okay, what does Kcat actually equal? We have the Vmax, so we could put this straight into the Kcat, but we're going to use k-cat and the Vmax divided by the enzyme concentration. So let's put that in to the Michaelis Menten equation, and therefore we get the Michaelis Menten equation now with a new character value, because we know the kinetic component, we know the enzyme concentration, we know the Km, and all the only thing we're doing is varying the substrate concentration. So we can now work out the velocity of that enzyme knowing the rate component, so again, we're bringing this rate component in our equation to give us equation six, which is first order. This provides us a very important number. This provides us the number using the Bacanis Menten and the K-Cat component in the kinetics of that K2 or K3 to give us what we call the turnover rate. Now, this is the maximal number upon the saturation of the enzyme, meaning we are giving it so much substrate. That little enzyme is so happy, just picking them up and shooting out as product, but he can only do it so fast because he re- has reached his maximal velocity, his maximal limit. The diffusion rate, the exceptions on the reaction has been maximized, he can go no further. And this is where the maximal conversion of saturation of the enzyme with the substrate gives a velocity at which that enzyme can do no more work. It has reached its last part of getting to that Vmax. So again, another way to allow us to establish Vmax this time from the kinetic process and understanding the transition of the enzyme substrate to the enzyme product. So the turnover rate is first order kinetic. And so it's always going to have a T minus component in regard to the substrate given in the unit over time. So again, the little equation here is the K cap, we then can substitute and change that equation around to put it in the michaelis menten equation. So you can see by manipulation of the michaelis menten equation, and even taking this now to the line, weaver plot and doing a double reciprocal on this, you're going to get a different equation, which is going to also give you the same information in regards to 1 over minus Km, 1 over Vmax, and the Km divided by the Vmax to give you the slope. So again, the linear uh, component in a double reciprocal plot. So here's some turnover rates in regards to some of the enzymes, very, very fast. The carbohydrate hydrating can get back to gain 40,000 uh, uh, components per second. 40,000 molecules. 400,000 molecules per second. That's fast. Only if we have a great reaction to do that. Compared to some other of the enzymes, which are much slower in regards to their turnover rate. So you can read more about this uh, and understand between the chapter 201-203. So, the reason we look at the turnover rate in k is because we're trying to figure out, are we working at the diffusion rate? Remember, unless I get that substrate coming to my cleft, and I'm processing that, and that substrate is now a new product, I have to then go back to then becoming the reactive enzyme to accept the substrate. So I'm doing this kind of shuffling, you know, taking a substrate, producing a product, going back and chasing another substrate. The issue in regards to the component of diffusion rates becomes very, very important. And again, a reflection of the saturation of that enzyme. So what we've actually found is that uh, when we look at the K-Cat and the Michaelis-Menten equation uh, and their values, we can actually see a specific ratio occurring. And it is actually very close to the limited diffusion rate. So the way these enzymes are working are absolutely amazing. The diffusion rate of a molecule from the corner to here is going to be fixed depending on what molecules it is going to interact with and what the concentration is, okay? So what we see in regards to the uh, K divided by the Km value is a specificity constant. This particular constant is really giving us the situation to produce EP enzyme product, but only when we are now supersaturating the enzyme. Meaning that we are way working, way, way, way above the Km value. That's where those notes I'll show you uh, on the Lima. So we can actually use this again to substitute it back into the michaelis Menten equation to get the initial velocity. We should know the total enzyme concentration at any substrate concentration at the saturational level. We should then have a full dependency on this particular uh, diffusion ratio, the K cap divided by the Km. Again, this will give us the velocity of the enzyme. So there's several ways we can work out what a velocity of the enzyme is depending on what information we have, what we know about the enzyme experimentally, and what the concentrations we are working with in the sense of the substrate, the type of enzyme concentration, and those particular relations. And as I said you'll get to a little bit understand those a little more when you start varying them just using the VMAX, using the mechanism equation in regards to the substrate and the Km values. Now as I said it gets a little more complex in regards to these rate consistencies. And there's basically a relationship in regards to the transition between the various enzyme, substrate, enzyme, product, enzyme, product, product, enzyme, product, 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 relationship. So here we have this guy here. We have an enzyme who's going to bind a substrate one or a substrate two, okay? That's really simple, a bit like that. Example I showed you with the induced fit with the ADP. We need both of those moieties though to bind the enzyme at a specific rate and even maybe in a specific order to get that induced fit to allow us then to transition the enzyme and the two substrates to produce the two products. So here's a little example of random order. Enzyme binding first substrate binding second substrate in a random process, doesn't matter which order with which they're going, as long as it gets to this guy, as long as the occupation of the two sites, the substrate one and substrate two, have occurred. Okay? And so whenever you now see these arrows, you know each of those arrows is going to represent a K minus and a K positive, meaning the rate. So obviously, there's going to be a rate of this going to this, there's going to be a rate of this deterioration here. There's going to be a rate of this going to this, and then binding to the second substrate, there's going to be a rate of deterioration there. So again, each individual arrow reflects a rate. So the biggest rate, obviously, is going to be this guy. This is going to be the rate-limiting step where we take the ES1 and ES2 to produce the enzyme and release of the two. Is gonna be the big guy, and see, it's only in one direction, too. So it's the commitment stage. You're not gonna go back, you're gonna make that commitment, the energy barrier, bang! You're gonna produce the enzyme and the two proteins. But that's in a random process. If enzymes, if substrate one and substrate two have separate binding spots, and they don't care which order they need to bind in, but when they're ordered, there is a problem, because you're gonna to have to have a specific order where substrate one first binds, he may modulate the structure of the enzyme to now open substrate two binding site, or modulate substrate two binding site to allow substrate two to have a lower energy to now bind its particular system to now produce the enzyme substrate one, substrate two complex as we see here. So this is an ordered component, and again, Great, right, then instead of this guy, where we're now going to see a complete transition, regeneration of the enzyme, and the production of the two parts. Now, there's some of these particular enzymes which have known quaternary complex formation. So they're really, really depending on what's going to go wrong with this particular product needing to be bound to the substrate to allow you to get the reaction to go. Pretty complex. Here's a substrate one, calling a substrate enzyme number one. Now transitioning a substrate one to a product, the product leaves, but it's now modified the enzyme. That enzyme is now primed to allow you to accept a new substrate and take that prime and put it onto the new substrate to produce a new product. So this is it we will continue this with the double reciprocal clock and we will have inhibition on Monday and that will also be on the examination. Oh, okay, catch you later. Have a good weekend. Uh, uh,